Good evening. I'm Larry Taunton, Executive Director of Fixed Point Foundation, an organization dedicated to exploring some of the big ideas of faith and culture. Uh, I hope that you can all understand me well. I'm from uh, the southern United States, and that means we talk with a little bit of a, of a drawl. Uh, so uh, I do hope that uh, Melburnians can follow my English. Uh, tonight's big idea focuses on the question of God and his existence. Is there a God? Joining me on the stage to debate this question are Professor John Lennox of the University of Oxford and and Professor Peter Singer of Princeton University. Now, to be clear, uh, these gentlemen will not be debating some vague deity, but rather the God of the Bible. Now, you will find in the, uh, the uh, flyer that was placed in your chair, you will find uh, the format uh, for the de tonight's debate. And uh, you will see that these gentlemen each will begin with their opening statements, their rebuttals. Um, there will be some questions from me and then from, uh, from each other and then they will have their closing statements. Gentlemen, I will indicate when you have reached the 15-minute mark with your opening statements, and I will let you know when you have reached the five-minute mark with your rebuttals. Now, a couple of disclaimers. I must acknowledge that Fixed Point Foundation is a Christian organization and that I am a Christian. That means I do have an opinion on the subject, but I find that all thoughtful people do. Uh, I have moderated a number of these um, debates, and I do hope that this evening that I can uh, execute my responsibilities with the, the fairness um, that we have uh, exhibited in previous discussions of this type. I will endeavor to be fair, to move things along, and to keep time and to ask questions as needed. Now, as for scoring points, um, I had the opportunity, this is my first time in Australia, and I had the opportunity to attend an Australian football league game. And I didn't entirely understand what was going on, but when someone, when someone scored, they did this. So I thought that tonight I might employ uh, similar signals to let you know when you have scored points. We do ask that you uh, uh, show us marked civility to these gentlemen and uh, that you'll save uh, your comments for them that you undoubtedly will have, that there will be a book signing afterwards, and we invite you to come and meet them at that time. So now, uh, we begin with our opening statements, and if my iPhone will function properly, then I will be able to time you. We begin with uh, Professor John Lennox.
Well, thank you very much for coming, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate enormously the invitation from Fixed Point to discuss the existence of God with Peter Singer. As a Christian, I find Peter's recent book, The Life You Can Save, a personal challenge to live consistently with the ethic of care for others as taught and embodied by Jesus Christ. An ethic that Peter not only approves of, but seeks impressively to follow. And I recommend his book. It is very sobering. I also have in common with him that I share his concern to stop the inhuman, inhumane treatment of animals. I do not share all of his views, particularly those on infanticide and euthanasia, although on these issues I sense a consistency in taking his atheistic worldview to the logical conclusion that Nietzsche suggested it had. Ethics depends on values, and values are certainly in part dependent on worldview. And it is that atheistic worldview that I hold to be false. For I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that there is a God, more precisely the God who is the subject of the opening sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I claim further that my faith in him is not blind, but is rational and evidence-based, rather like my science. Indeed, in my view, science points toward God. And in a moment, I shall start there, since it's so often assumed today that science has made belief in God impossible. But it would only be fair and reasonable of me to point out that my first contact with Christianity was through my parents, whose ethical integrity springing from a robust Christian faith was my first credible and tangible evidence that Christianity was true. I might add that they were Christians without being sectarian. I happen to be from Northern Ireland, as no doubt some of you will guess. And my parents loved me enough to allow me to think and give me space. And that is what eventually led me to my science. So let's think about science for a moment. On the door of the famous Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge stands a great mandate for research put there by that Scottish genius, James Clark Maxwell, who is ranked by Einstein as second only to Newton. It comes from the Hebrew Bible. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. It was put there because the conviction that there is one God affirms the unity and coherence of the world, and it gave rise to modern science in the 16th and 17th centuries. As C.S. Lewis put it, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. One of Australia's most distinguished historians, Edwin Judge, puts it this way, Christianity, or above all, the biblical doctrine of creation, is itself the creator of the methodology of modern science. We don't hold the Greek's perspective anymore, in spite of the fact that people keep looking back to it as the origin of science. It is not the origin of science. The pioneers of science did not believe in a god of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. 
When Newton discovered his law of gravitation, he didn't say, now I know how it works, I don't need God. No, he wrote the most famous book in the history of science, the Principia Mathematica, expressing the hope that it would help a thinking person to believe in God. And it's not only the fact that we can do science, but the results of science that point toward God. The heavens declare the glory of God, wrote the ancient Hebrew poet. And in recent years, through studying those same heavens, we have become aware of the delicate balance, the so-called fine-tuning of the fundamental forces of nature that's necessary for life to be possible. Ardo Penzias, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, said astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. But it goes deeper than that. Peter and I clearly share a belief in the importance of reason in our respective disciplines of science and ethics. And the question arises, on what evidence do we base our faith in human reason? Every scientist, for instance, assumes that the universe is intelligible to the human mind. And Einstein was clever enough to be amazed by this. And he said the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. How can it be that a mathematical equation thought up in the mind of a mathematician can correspond to the workings of the universe out there? Nobel Prize winner Eugene Wigner described this as the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. What then is the justification for assuming that human reason is reliable? At this point, the irony of the atheist position becomes apparent. For my atheist friends in Oxford tell me that the driving force of evolution, which eventually produced our human cognitive faculties, reason included, was not primarily concerned with truth at all, but with survival. And we all know what has happened, and still happens very often to truth, when individuals or commercial enterprises or nations, motivated perhaps by their selfish genes, feel themselves threatened and struggle for survival. Moreover, it appears to me that atheists are obliged to regard thought as some kind of neurophysiological phenomenon. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, the neurophysiology might well be adaptive. But why would one think for a moment that the beliefs generated by it should be mostly true? After all, as the chemist J.B.S. Haldane pointed out long ago, if the thoughts in my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, a mechanism that has arisen by mindless, unguided processes, why should I believe anything it tells me, including the fact that it is made of atoms? Atheist John Gray spells out the implications of this view. Modern humanism is the faith that through science, humankind can know the truth and so be free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. And yet, my atheist friends still insist that it is rational for them to believe that the evolution of human reason was not directed for the purpose of discovering truth, and yet they say that it is irrational for me to believe that human reason was designed and created by God to enable us to understand and believe the truth. Where is the sense in that? And I believe American philosopher Alvin Plantinga gets the heart of this. 
If atheists are right, he says, that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then they have given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties, and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including their atheism. Their biology and their belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing at all to do with God. That is, atheism by its reductionism undermines the foundations of the very rationality that is needed to construct or understand or believe in any kind of argument whatsoever, including scientific and ethical arguments. There's clearly something wrong here, and I suggest it is the fundamental assumption on which atheism is based. And that is that ultimate reality is impersonal mass energy, and all the rest, including mind and intelligence, is derivative so that atheism is forced to derive the rational from the irrational. Now, by contrast, biblical theism teaches the exact opposite. It starts by asserting that ultimate reality is personal and intelligent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came to be through Him. So God is primary and eternal. It is matter and energy that are derivative. God is a person, not a theory. Human beings reflect his image, and that is why science can be done. That makes sense to me as a scientist, whereas atheism does not. However, there's more to God than intelligence. The existence of God, I argue, gives coherence to the notion of rationality, and in particular, makes possible the ethical reasoning that is rightly so important to Peter Singer. Now, I agree with you, Peter, that ethical concern and behavior does not itself require religious belief. After all, you are yourself an impressive example of this. But that's exactly what I would expect to find, since in my view, whether or not human beings believe in God, they are created in his image as moral persons with consciences. However, just as rationality can be used, but cannot ultimately be explained without God, the same is true of morality. Again, I would cite history. For just as modern science sprang from Judeo-Christian roots, so did the concept of human equality that lies at the base of Western society. Atheist thinker Jürgen Habermas writes, universalistic egalitarianism from which sprang the ideals of freedom and a collective life and solidarity, the autonomous conduct of life and emancipation, the individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Everything else, he says, is just idle postmodern talk. The value of a human being on which such egalitarianism is based consists not in what she can do, but in what she is, made in God's image. My Russian friends, how often have they said to me, we thought we could abolish God and retain a value for human beings. We couldn't. We abolished God and we destroyed millions of human beings. I would suggest if you do away with God, you ultimately do away with human freedom because you are left with a mindless, unguided process that somehow threw humans up at its endless lottery to exist without ultimate hope for a tiny moment 
only to be crushed by the same blind forces that produced them. Some freedom that. And atheist John Gray says about the more vocal new atheists like Richard Dawkins, they defend liberal freedoms without asking where they come from. After all, as Nietzsche clearly saw, if there is no eternal base for values external to humanity, how can any of our moral standards be anything but limited human conventions? Ultimately meaningless products of a blind, unguided evolutionary process. And Peter, I found your recent writings fascinating because although I understand you to believe we are here by chance, in the preface of the third edition of Practical Ethics, you suggest that there may well be objective ethical truths that are independent of what anyone desires. That sounds to be increasingly consistent with my own position. And yet, to be fair to you, the Guardian report of Oxford conference recently says, nevertheless, Peter is no more inclined to believe in God, though he did admit that there is a sense in which he regrets not doing so as that is the only way to provide a complete answer to the question, why act morally? Only faith in a good God finally secures the conviction that living morally coincides with living well. I look forward to exploring the reasons, Peter, why you feel you cannot take that step. Now, science, marvelous as it is, has its limits. And so I come to another piece of evidence, and that is revelation in the Bible. I claim that God has spoken to this world, and in particular the biblical analysis of the problems with humanity, not simply in horizontal terms of behavioral breakdown between people, but of a vertical breakdown of a relationship of trust in the Creator its unique solution to that problem, not in terms simply of human ethical development, but in terms of something far deeper altogether, the restoration of the fractured relationship with God through the salvation He has brought through Jesus Christ, a relationship that brings a power to live ethically for God. And here we reach what for me is the chief evidence, not only for the existence, but the nature of God, it was Jesus Christ who not only taught the golden rule, but embodied it. He fed the hungry, healed the sick and suffering, welcomed society's outcasts, brought forgiveness and peace and new life to the lives of multi-millions. He is able to do this because, though he was a man, he uniquely was never only a man, but God become human, come to be the Savior of the world. This is the central claim of the Gospels. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he made statements consonant with this. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am, I am the truth. Now these are staggering claims. But we need to pause and reflect that the nature of the physical universe is staggeringly complex. We don't even know what energy is. So we should not be surprised that these far deeper realities are even more complex. And just as we believe in our deep physical theories because of evidence, my conviction that Jesus is the Son of God is based on the fact of his historical resurrection from the dead that launched Christianity in the world. This is, of course, the crunch issue. If he rose from the dead, death is not the end and atheism is false. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity is false. 
Finally, ladies and gentlemen, I find Christianity intensely stimulating. But as I read the Bible, I do not only find intellectual satisfaction, I sense the voice of God speaking to me. Now, this is intensely personal, but I've been asked what evidence counts for me, and this is an essential part of it. I'm not only convinced that there is a God, I have increasingly learned to trust Him, and I have strong reasons for doing so. After all, Christ died and rose for me, and that generates in me a deep sense of utterly unmerited forgiveness, acceptance, and peace that enables me to face the ugly side of my own nature and with God's help do something about it. I have found in Him a profound resource when facing life's perplexities, uncertainties, and hard problems. And to sum up, it is my relationship with God through Christ that in the end is the supreme evidence that God is real, that fills my life with meaning and sheds and permeates my marriage, family life, work, and rest. And I deserve none of it. I would find it very hard, ladies and gentlemen, not to trust a God like that. Thank you. Professor Singer, your opening statement. Thank you very much, and I want to thank you, uh, Larry, for organizing this event, for uh, this time coming to my hometown, as I still think of Melbourne, and uh, John Lennox, too, for, for joining me here. And I'm very glad that you at least got to see a football match. Whatever else happens, you'll have learned something <laughs> from this visit. And I want to thank uh, you, John, too, of course, for your remarks and the spirit in which you've given them. Um, so, let me begin with uh, the reasons why I do not believe in God. Um, I suppose you could say there is, um, there is at least one positive reason why I don't believe in God and two negative reasons. The positive reason is the one that was reputed to have been uttered by Laplace when the Emperor Napoleon asked him where God figured in his account of the cosmos. And Laplace famously replied, I had no need of that hypothesis. In other words, to Laplace, the universe was sufficiently explicable without positing a God, or at least no more explicable if we do posit one. So why do so? And that, despite some of the things that, that John has said in his remarks, which I will come to either later now or in rebuttal, um, I think is still the case. We do not need to believe in God in order to explain the universe, and belief in God does not really help us to explain it. Why do people believe in God? Well, um, I'm asking that as a philosophical question rather than a psychological question. There may be some psychological needs for people to believe in God, um, but looking at that as more as a philosophical question, we could say that uh, in the Christian tradition, particularly in medieval times, the tradition attempted to develop rational arguments for the existence of God. And to some extent, that still exists among Roman Catholic circles. Among, I'll mention three of those famous arguments. There's the first cause argument, that you need to believe in God to answer the question, what caused the universe 
to exist? And the answer is, of course, God created it. John says he believes. We're talking about the biblical God, the God who is supposed to have created the world. Um, Secondly, the ontological argument, which works from the definition of God as a being with all the perfections. And thirdly, the argument from design, that the world shows signs of having been designed by a God. Let me briefly look at at these. The first cause argument um, is sometimes today um, resurrected as something that is compatible with science because people sometimes say, haven't we learned through science that the universe began with a big bang? That it began around 13 billion years ago. Um, John, I think, said that it was created from nothing or he quoted a scientist saying it was created from nothing. And how could that happen? How can you create something from nothing? Doesn't that suggest that there has to be a God? But I think scientists are guilty of sowing a great deal of confusion when they use the word universe in statements such as the universe began 13 billion years ago with the Big Bang. If you actually tackle a physicist who studies this issue and ask, what do you really mean by the universe in that statement? They will tell you, if they're honest, that what they're talking about is the observable universe or the known universe. The universe that we can observe with our telescopes and all the devices we have seems to have begun from some kind of bang, if you like, development about 13 billion years ago and to have been expanding ever since. But if you ask the scientist, well, do we know that it began from nothing? They will answer, no, we don't know that at all. We can't observe anything beyond, before the Big Bang. So any statements about what, hap- what the situation was before the Big Bang are not scientific statements. They are statements perhaps of, of religious faith or belief. Um, so it may well be that the universe, for example, has been constantly oscillating, been constantly expanding and then collapsing and then expanding again, and it's been doing that forever, for infinite time. That's perfectly compatible with everything that science can tell us. So we don't need a God to explain the beginning of the universe. The universe may have always existed. And indeed, if we think that, as the first cause argument runs, everything has to have a first cause, then, of course, that argument applies to God as well. If we're allowed to say God needs no first cause, then we ought to be allowed to say the universe needs no first cause. The ontological argument, briefly stated, is that we define God as a being who has all of the perfections, all of the possible perfections. That means a God who is supremely whatever qualities you can think of as being perfect, beautiful, wise, um, good, uh, powerful, and so on. But then it's claimed that if this God did not exist, that would be a failing, that would be a lack. So this perfect being would lack something, namely existence, therefore God must exist. Well, very, very few philosophers nowadays believe that argument. If it sounded to you like some kind of conjuring trick, getting the existence of God out of a mere definition, I think your instinct was right. 
I believe that Alvin Plantinga, who John cited a while ago, is one of the very few philosophers who thinks that that argument does have some merit, but um, I certainly don't. Existence is not an attribute in the same way that power or beauty or wisdom or goodness are attributes, and it's a simple confusion to think that you can define a being into existence in that way. Thirdly, the argument from design was once quite a powerful argument. It's the, it's the watchmaker's argument. Um, Richard Dawkins has a book, The Blind Watchmaker, that says, well, you know, if things happen by evolution, how could they all fit together so well? It seems like everything works well in the universe. There are signs of things having been designed. Certainly people of the past thought that animals were created for us to eat um, and uh, uh, for us to wear their skins and they pointed to other things in nature like uh, the fact that if water did not expand when it froze then uh, ponds would freeze solid and fish would die and so on. There are things that people regarded as, as uh, being beautifully designed including our own organs and the organs of, of animals which seem to have certain functions and purposes. But of course, now that we understand the Darwinian theory of evolution, that argument has fallen into disrepute. We understand much better how it is that we have certain organs, how it is that beings uh, exist, um, that uh, they have evolved over barely imaginable periods of time. Only those that were indeed adapted to their environment and could survive and reproduce um, left descendants that are still with us. And I think the fossil record now shows that, and more recently our understanding of genetics shows our own biological relationship with very simple organisms, including bacteria with whom we share some genes, and then progressively we share more genes with beings more like us until we get up to the great apes, chimpanzees, with whom we share something like 98% of our genes. So. Um, I think evolution is one of the most uh, uh, firmly uh, established scientific theories with a huge amount of evidence for it and um, we don't therefore need the argument from design to explain uh, how the universe comes to be like it is. So the arguments for the existence of God seem to me to be not strong. Now interestingly in the Protestant tradition those arguments fell into disrepute quite a long time ago and so Protestants began to disavow the arguments and say, what really matters is faith. But what is faith? Faith is really just believing in something for which you have neither rational arguments nor good evidence. I know that uh, John is a mathematician by training, so I'm sure he's familiar with the 19th century mathematician and philosopher William Clifford, who um, wrote a very nice uh, essay about faith using as an analogy a ship owner who was about to send to sea a ship full of immigrants. We can imagine they were coming to Australia if you like since many immigrants did set sail from England in the 19th century for Australia. And as we know of course you only have to go down to um, the Great Ocean Road and you find many places where some of those ships founded and sank with great loss of life for example around uh, Lockard. But this ship owner that Clifford imagines um, does, uh, is uncertain whether his ship is seaworthy enough to make the long voyage to bring the immigrants to the new land. But he thinks about it and he says, well look, after all there's a divine providence and how could a divine providence 
allow these good people who are going to establish their futures, men, women and children even, who are at least the children, innocent of any sin, how could he allow them to drown on the way to the new world? So I will have faith in God and I won't bother to inspect the ship to see whether it's seaworthy because I have faith that it will reach Australia. Well, of course, as I say, we know that some ships did not and we would fault this ship owner and say, you can't just have faith in that way, you need to check the evidence, you need to look at it. The ship owner's faith would have put lives at risk and unfortunately in the real world today, faith also puts lives at risk. In fact, the refusal of the Roman Catholic Church to tolerate the use of condoms, even in regions of sub-Saharan Africa where the risk of contracting HIV AIDS is extremely high, has undoubtedly not merely put lives at risk, but cost perhaps millions of innocent human lives. We pay a high price for the religious faith of some religious leaders. So, I don't think the arguments for God are good and I don't think we should rely on faith to replace arguments. But I have two arguments against belief in the God of the Bible. The first argument is that um, although we may live in a society in which most religious believers are Christians or, since we're talking about the God of the Bible, let's group together Christians and those of the Jewish faith, um, most religious believers come from, from here, come from one of those two religions and if we want to broaden this to the Abrahamic traditions, we can include Muslims as well. We know as a matter of, of sociological fact that if they had been brought up in other cultures with different religious beliefs, let's say in India, they would have been much likely, more likely to be Hindus. Or if they had been brought up in Islamic countries, the Christians and Jews would have been much more likely to be Muslims. So, um, there's a kind of relativism about religious belief that should at least lead us to a skeptical attitude towards it. Is it just, you know, is it just a coincidence that John is a Christian when his parents were Christians? It's surely not just a coincidence, it's surely that cultural tradition which made it easier for him to accept that belief. Although, of course, many Christians, children of many Christians do abandon their belief. But I think that should at least make us uh, critical about those traditions. But the second, the second negative argument seems to me much the stronger one. And this is that if we're talking about the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition, that God is standardly defined as a being who is all-knowing, all-powerful and all-good. Omnipotent, omniscient and uh, omnibenevolent. And yet there is suffering in the world. How could there be suffering in the world if there were a God who knew about this suffering, had the power to prevent it and did not prevent it? Well, Christians of course are not ignorant of this counter-argument and they say many things. For example, they say, but God gave us free will. That was a great gift, worth all the suffering that occurs. But given that we have free will, he could not stop us from causing each other to suffer. 
Well, we might question whether the gift of free will is worth the horrendous amount of suffering that there has been in the world from, no doubt, as long as there have been beings capable of suffering. But putting that aside, it's obvious that there is suffering in the world which is not caused by free will. For example, you will all know that for about a dozen years, ending only, perhaps, was it a year or 18 months ago, Southeastern Australia had a terrible drought. And during that drought, many animals died. Two minutes. They died simply because the water holes dried up or they could not get enough to eat. It was not human action that caused that suffering. So there is suffering in the world which is not caused by humans, caused by earthquakes, droughts, and so on. Christians sometimes also say that suffering is the result of sin. But it's impossible to believe that a small child who is crushed by a falling building in an earthquake has sinned and therefore deserves that suffering. And of course the animals that I've already mentioned did not sin and yet they suffer not only at human hands but at the hands of, of nature. I have asked many intelligent thoughtful Christians and I'm asking John Lennox again tonight to explain to me how the existence of undeserved suffering not caused by human activity could be compatible with the idea that an all-knowing God created this world, knows about the suffering, could have predicted the suffering at the time of the creation of the world, and did not change things to reduce this vast amount of suffering that goes on in the world today. It seems to me wildly implausible that this world is a world that was created by that kind of God. It seems to me much more likely that this is simply a world that has arisen through the processes of evolution that we are now increasingly familiar with, which are indeed blind and unguided, but have nevertheless thrown up beings capable of reasoning and in response to what John said, I would say developed capacities to understand the world and their situation because that did have survival advantages, but now can use these capacities to understand the world. That seems to me by far the more plausible picture of the world we're in than the one that theists attempt to persuade us to accept. Thank you. John, you have five to seven minutes. Well, Peter, thank you very much. We could be here all night, I think, with a very interesting conversation. Let me do what I can and hope that we can then discuss these in detail with the moderator. First of all, Laplace, the mathematician, when Napoleon asked him, where is God in your equations? Of course, he gave the right answer. Je n'ai pas besoin de cette hypothèse. I don't need that hypothesis because he was explaining how the thing is mathematically described. But if Napoleon had asked Laplace, how is it that there is a universe which is governed by such equations, he might have answered a different way. And I think the mistake that's being committed here is the difference between mechanism and law as explanation on the one hand, and God as agent on the other hand. You will not find Henry Ford 
in the laws of internal combustion or inside one of his motor cars. But if you want a complete explanation of the motor car, you will need both types of explanation. Now that brings me to Peter's next point of the uh, traditional arguments for God, and we can't go into all of them, of course. But uh, let me come to the, uh, the argument from design. Now, whatever evolution can or cannot do, it is a mechanism. And the whole point of this category mistake is this, that the existence of a mechanism that does something is not in itself an argument for the absence of an agent that designed the mechanism. Now, as a mathematician, I'm extremely skeptical about certain aspects of evolution, not the ones Darwin observed. But as has now been admitted, even by Richard Dawkins, evolution has nothing to say about the origin of life itself for a very simple reason. Because evolution needs to get going the existence of a, a mutating replicator. Now, the fascinating thing to my mind about the, origin, about the argument for design updated is this that in every one of the 10 trillion cells of our body, there's a database, a huge database. The human genome is 3.5 billion letters long, all in the right order like a computer program. Now, all of our experience and intuition tells us that semiotic language-like structure does not arise by natural processes. You only have to see the first few letters of your name written in the sand at a Melbourne beach when you will immediately deduce upwards to intelligent origination, whatever the mechanisms involved. And it seems to me one of the most powerful arguments from design today is the sheer existence of the longest word in any alphabet that resonates, to my mind, much better with in the beginning was the word than it resonates in the beginning were simply chance motions and so on. So it seems to me, quite apart from evolution, the existence of this language-like structure is very powerful evidence for God. Now, Peter, you raised the question, I can't resist saying something about this, because Richard Dawkins makes it the heart of his book, The God Delusion. If you say that God created the universe, then you have to say who created God, who created the creator. But this is a clever question, because you see, if I ask who created X, I'm assuming X is created. And if Richard Dawkins had written a book called The Created God's Delusion, I don't think it would have sold many copies. Because created gods we've known for centuries are a delusion. We usually call them idols. So it seems to me the question assumes what the Christian tradition, and indeed the Muslim and Jewish traditions, deny. That is that God is not created. But when I had a debate with Richard Dawkins, again organized by our friend Larry, I said this question is barbed because it works both ways. If you claim that it's a valid question to say who created God, then let me try it on you. You believe that the universe created you. Who created your creator? I'm still waiting for the answer to that question. Now, faith, Peter, I do not accept your definition. That is the definition of blind faith. And we all know the difference. We've seen it in the financial crisis. We thought we could trust some bankers, didn't we? And we discovered that our faith was not evidence-based. 
Blind faith is dangerous, of course. It's the kind of thing that causes young people to fly planes into tall buildings. And I would want to emphasize that the Christian faith is not like that. It is a commitment based on evidence. John, in his gospel, says at the end of it, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Two minutes. But these are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, here is the evidence upon which faith is based. And what launched Christianity on the ancient world, as Paul pointed out to the philosophers in Athens, was the fact of the resurrection as a base which they could place their faith in, an evidence base that gave them the confidence to preach Christianity. So I simply don't accept the definition. Now, brought up by parents who were Christians, I was indeed. Peter, can I ask you, were your parents atheists? My mother was certainly an atheist. Um, my father was uh, yeah. maybe more agnostic. So you're perpetuating the faith of your parents too, like I am. Um, <laughs> it's not a faith in my view. Oh, well, of course it's, it's a faith. Don't you believe it? I don't have faith in any being. I think the point I'm making, Peter, that this is the genetic fallacy, as you well know. And uh, the point is, and I take the point, because when I first got to Cambridge, one of the first questions I was asked, of course you believe in God. All you Irish believe in God, and you fight about it. And for seconds. that reason, I have spent my life among people that don't share my faith in order to be sure that I'm not being fooled. And I have known many people, not in the categories that you and I are, who have become Christians because of the evidence, and they've changed their worldview. So I think that is a distinct possibility. Your biggest question, and the hardest one I face, is the problem of suffering, and we'll have to deal with it when we get Larry to moderate us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I, there are a number of things that uh, John said in his opening that um, I want to talk about, but just to, to go back to the point that he was making before about um, the uncreated universe, um, he asked me, well, who is my creator? I mean, I, I, I don't have a creator. I evolved, as you all did, from many generations, but um, I don't see a problem in thinking that the universe is not created. It simply has always existed. And I think the point is that, there, not that I'm not arguing that the existence of the material universe is strictly incompatible with a creator, but I'm simply arguing that uh, we have no need to believe in such a creator, and the, there is no argument for him from the fact that the, the universe needs a first cause, because then the creator also needs a first cause. And if uh, John rejects that assumption, saying that, well, uh, you know, we, we define God as uncreated, well, then, of course, we can say the universe also is uncreated. Um, I want to address, though, the point that um, uh, John made, both in his opening remarks and again now, that um, Christianity is based on a historical fact, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the evidence for this historical fact is extremely slender. That's the problem with trying to rest on that. 
we don't have any contemporary documents that attest to this. We know from um, biblical uh, criticism, new scholarship, that um, the actual so-called Gospels that we read were written um, considerably uh, after this. Um, they may have an earlier source, sometimes called Q, but that too was written um, at least a, a, a generation after this. So the idea of um, Jesus having been resurrected is something that uh, you know is a something that is is a, was around in the literature um, that was written many years afterwards by Christians. Um, but of course, we know that there are many diverse religious traditions that make all sorts of claims about historical facts, and um, the idea of a of a God who is uh, resurrected, who comes back to life, is also not unique to Christianity. We find it in, in other anthropological traditions and in traditions uh, around the time we find. Um, so uh, I think to really to rest much on this claim as a historical claim is extremely slender. And particularly since it does seem to violate all the laws of, of nature that we know and understand, um, we would need to have particularly strong evidence in order to believe in it. This is a point that the philosopher David Hume made, that to believe in miracles, you would need to have uh, quite remarkably good evidence. In fact, Hume thought that you could never really have such evidence. Um, I wouldn't say you could never have such evidence. I wouldn't say it's inconceivable that you could have events that were so well documented and witnessed that even though they appeared to go against uh, all the laws of, of nature that we understand, um, nevertheless you would believe in them. But certainly the idea that uh, Jesus uh, rose again from the dead is not something that we could claim to be well known. In fact, I would say there are pretty much no facts about the life of Jesus that you could really take as being well known and well documented. But that would probably lead us too far. At least this central historical claim I think is something that you really have to be already a believer with faith to say, this is what I'm going to stake my belief on, despite the fact that there are so many other religious traditions that claim all sorts of incredible things. Now, I also want to deal with the idea that somehow, the, although science or evolution can explain the mechanisms, they don't explain this idea of the agent. But of course, this is precisely the difference between a car which we know was designed uh, for a purpose and the universe, which was not, in my view, designed for a purpose and doesn't need any kind of agent. Um, I don't see any problem with the idea that consciousness arises from a process of evolution. We know that there are non-human animals which have consciousness of various sorts and various degrees, and we can understand how consciousness can be useful uh, for survival, how the capacity to feel pain can be useful in avoiding dangers and therefore helping you to survive. And we know that, for example, things like being able to do rudimentary mathematics can be helpful to survive, so that if you see three tigers go into a cave and only two come out, you know that it's not a good idea to go into that cave. So um, it's not surprising that we should have developed this capacity and now we develop it to a very high degree where we can write papers on these topics as, as John has done. Um, and I think something similar can happen with, with uh, morality, that maybe we can have insights even into, as John suggested, 
possibly objective moral truths, which have nothing to do with God, but are objective in the sense that some of the truths of mathematics are objective, and we've developed a capacity to reason which enables us to see and understand those truths. So I don't think it follows from uh, atheism that morality can only be human conventions, although um, uh, you know, that's, that would be a possibility that some philosophers believe in, but um, I think it's perfectly compatible with it that we have rational insights that are more universal. And in that connection, I also want to reject the idea that John mentioned, that the idea of human equality springs specifically from Christian roots. Not so. It's part of the universality of morality that philosophers in different traditions have accepted that idea or something very like it. You find it, for example, in the Stoic tradition, which uh, was around in Rome at the time was when Christianity was spreading, so maybe it's no coincidence that Christianity picked it up. In, uh, and you find it also completely separately, independently, I'd suggest, in uh, Chinese thought, um, in the thought of Mencius, for example, um, uh, among ancient Chinese philosophers uh, uh, before uh, the era of Christianity. So I think there are things that human minds in separate cultures differently have come to accept. Maybe they don't put them into practice as much as we would like, but they are ideas that occur to the kinds of rational, intelligent beings who have evolved on this planet. Thank you. So, gentlemen, we now move to a time of uh, questions and your responses. I certainly want to invite you to engage one another, to generate some conversation between you, and I will invite you to, uh, to ask each other questions. <clears throat> Let's begin with you, Peter. Uh, John has made this statement. He says, do away with God and you do away with freedom. Would you like to respond to that? Certainly. Um, the word freedom means different things, of course. Um, we have, in a country like Australia, a considerable degree of political freedom. I presume John does not mean that if you do away with God, you necessarily have an authoritarian uh, regime in place. Um, uh, you, I presume he accepts that you could have political freedom, as indeed we do, although many Australians, from our Prime Minister Dan, are not religious believers. Um, so presumably he means in some sense free will. And if that's what he means, then I would say there's a sense in which that claim is true and there's a sense in which it's false. Um, obviously, we have freedom to make choices. I chose to take part in this debate. I could have declined. I was conscious of making that choice. Um, but could somebody have said, well, it was in some way predetermined if somebody had known the position of every atom in the universe at some earlier point um, and all of the laws uh, that govern the universe, they would have been able to predict that I, Peter Singer, would have accepted uh, Larry Taunton's invitation to speak at this debate tonight? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's a possibility. So there's maybe a sense in which you know, the kind of deep metaphysical freedom that some theists and proponents of free will want to talk about 
is not possible on the view of the universe that I hold. But we should not be deluded into thinking that that means that we don't make real choices. Obviously, we do. Uh, Professor Lennox, uh, uh, would you like to, to respond to that? I mean, it, it seems that the, the idea of God um, creating freedom is counterintuitive. Isn't freedom found in, uh, in the belief that there is no God? Well, I sympathize quite a bit with what Peter has just said. It seems to me you get various degrees of this. What I was referring to, Peter, was my own frequent experience of Russia, the systematic exp um, imposition of a, an atheistic regime, which left them, it wasn't my quote, it was their quote, that uh, they felt that they'd been robbed of freedom. And of course, the classic example of it is the Berlin Wall. Um, so I was referring to it at that level. What I find quite interesting is that, I don't know whether you go along with this or where you're hinting at it, um, when it comes down to it, Richard Dawkins, for instance, in his book, says that the universe is just at bottom what we'd expect to find if, in the end, there is no good, no evil, no justice. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Because that, that would seem to me to be spell the end of your ethics and all morality, if, if we have that kind of determinism in the universe. But presumably you're not suggesting that. No, I don't, I don't agree with, with Richard Dawkins if he thinks that there is no good or no bad and no justice um, mm. in the universe. Um, and of course, he, he can't say that as a scientist. He's simply saying, I would say, that um, science or evolution doesn't show you what is good or not. I mean, that's a philosophical question. Um, but uh, I don't think we need to reject ideas that some things are good, that suffering is bad, for example, mm -hmm. at least the suffering of the innocent is a bad thing. I don't think that, um, and I, I, I took it that you were accepting this, I don't think that we need to abandon that view just because we abandon theism. No, no. no. Um, if I can just say one thing about, because I, then I did slightly misunderstand what you, you said about freedom. Um, look, uh, I mean, I think if you only listen to Russians uh, who suffered under the uh, atheist Soviet regime um, for loss of freedom, you, you're taking a somewhat biased sample. Maybe you should go to Iran and ask people there um, whether you know, they have freedom, and if not, they would perhaps say, look, it's, it's theism that has um, prevented us from having a great deal of freedom. And mm. certainly there are many parts of the world where that is true, and in historical times there have been even more parts of the world where people have been deprived of their freedom in the name of religious belief. So I don't think either, uh, you know, I don't think atheism has any monopoly in terms of depriving, depriving people of freedom. I'm sure you'd agree with that. Oh, I would agree with it, especially coming from Northern Ireland. <laughs> um, and I think it's very important there to distinguish, uh, which sometimes people do not do, but I'm sure you do, between different religions. Because one of the things that's been very important to me on, on this particular issue is that it was Christ himself that refused to allow the use of violence to defend him or his message. And it seems to me that that is immensely important, that Christians who take up weapons to defend their faith are not followers of Jesus. They're actually contradicting what he stood for. Well, that may be, but then we have the question of whether we all ought to be pacifists in a world in which there are some people who are not pacifists. And um, you know, while I deplore a lot of the violence in the world, um, I'm not a pacifist. 
I was wording myself very carefully. I said to defend him or his message. He did say the sword, uh, the early apostles did say the state does not bear the sword in vain. I think there were two separate issues actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go to you, uh, Professor Lennox. Um, you have argued that science gives evidence of a God, and then your closing statement, uh, excuse me, rather, uh, your, your last remarks in your opening statement, you then spoke of Jesus Christ. Uh, why, why does the evidence, it seems like there might be a leap there, what, how does the evidence go from that, uh, that, that science demonstrates, as you argued, that there is a God to the God of the Bible? Oh, it doesn't, and I never intended it to. Um, let me make that very clear. Uh, I was responding to the fact, what evidence do I count as valid for the existence of God? And it's of different kinds. It, it, some of it comes from science and the rational intelligibility of the universe, and the fact we can do science. That only gets us so far, as in fact the New Testament recognizes. You can see, I believe, in nature that there is a God and that he's powerful, but you don't get much further than that. Then I would claim, and it is a step further, I agree with you entirely, but it's a step into history, not into imagination. And I would come back a bit at you here, Peter, that it seems to me the evidence for the New Testament historicity is very considerable indeed. Um, we have documents going back to the very early centuries indeed. In fact, one document of part of the Gospel of John into the first century, and senior people like Oxford Sherwin White, who's a an eminent Roman historian, says that the, the confirmation of the historicity of, say, the New Testament basic history book, the book of Acts, is utterly overwhelming. I think historians, whom I have consulted in detail because I'm not a historian, would be much more confident than you appear to be that there is very strong evidence for the historicity of what's claimed in the New Testament. Um, am I allowed to comment, Larry, on the resurrection specifically here? Because Peter made the comment that, as David Hume famously said, miracles are violations of the law of nature. Well, uh, David Hume was a distinguished Scotsman. I'm an Irishman, and I disagree with him. <laughs> I think, Peter, that this notion that miracles are violations of the laws of nature has been responsible for an immense amount of confusion. And let me illustrate it uh, this way, um, and it's a, an illustration due to C.S. Lewis. If in my hotel in Melbourne tonight I put $100 plus $100 in a drawer, it's $200. Now, if I wake up in the morning and find $50, I won't say the laws of arithmetic have been broken. I may so say the laws of Australia have been broken. Now, the point is, how do I recognize that someone has put his hand into the system. I recognize it by knowing those laws of arithmetic. Now, it seems to me that with something like the resurrection, we need a universe that is governed by stable laws. If you do not know regularities to which nature normally works, you cannot recognize something that appears to contravene those regularities. If, if you think dead people jump up every hour of the week, you won't be surprised by a resurrection. They know the regularities. But you see, no Christian is claiming that Jesus rose from the dead by natural processes. What they are claiming is that God 
fed by his power into the system and did something special. Science, in its description of the regularities, is completely neutral on that. It can tell us that resurrections are improbable, but not impossible, because they don't violate any laws. So I would take issue at that basic conception there. Yes, I mean, I'm not, as I said, I'm not explicitly defending Hume's claim, which was a, a strong one, but um, I do think that the evidence you know, if you're relying on historical evidence, the evidence is extremely thin. Um, we know that there are many cases where people claim to have seen all sorts of things, claim that all, they've had all kinds of visions, that people have appeared to them, um, uh, you know, that they've been cured, and, and generally we are skeptical about such claims. We, and rightly we, so. Right, okay, so um, given, I mean, you said there are documents from the first century, okay, but the first century is compatible with, if we assume that the tradition is that Jesus uh, was crucified in around uh, 30, then we're talking about people who um, were writing who were perhaps the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of those who were supposed to witness it. Now, we know that stories get twisted and new stories get invented. You only have to play Chinese whispers with uh, 50 people and, you know, see what comes out at the end after you whisper something in at the beginning. But so that isn't true, Peter, really, because the Apostle Paul was writing in the early 50s. It's much nearer to the time than that. Now, I'm a little bit older than you. I can remember things very clearly 20, 30 years back and so on. So I, I think the gap is well, but much... Paul, Paul was not an eyewitness, right? I mean, Paul was reporting what other people said. Yeah, but he was an eyewitness of something. You were saying that a lot of people, uh, many people have to be a believer in the resurrection before they do anything else. Paul wasn't. He was absolutely against uh, Jesus, and it was an appearance of the risen Christ that uh, was the foundation of his conversion. So he was not a believer when he met Jesus. Right. So it was one of these kinds of visions that I was talking about that he had, or apparition or something like that. And, and that's what I'm saying. We know many people have these, sometimes about their religious beliefs, sometimes about aliens coming from Mars or somewhere and kidnapping them. Um, and we're normally very skeptical about this. And, and yeah. we understand that in Paul's day, people maybe were not quite so skeptical, but we would think that they should have been a lot more I think they were skeptical. extremely skeptical. And in fact, um, in any of my studies of the psychology of hallucinations, um, uh, the evidence is that people see what they're expecting to see. Now, the one significant thing about Jesus' resurrection is nobody was expecting to see it. And uh, the fact is that Paul was saying that there were 500 witnesses who saw it at once. There is no record, I don't think historically, I may be wrong on that, of any collective hallucination. They're normally individual things. And I think we can get at this historically. Um, I'm going to do a shameless bit of advertising because I've just written a book on the evidence for the resurrection. Um, and so these things are very fresh to my mind. And you're right in being skeptical, Peter. But I think if we bring that skeptical mind, and I've tried to do it all my life to these things, the evidence mounts. The fact is, Christianity seemed hopeless when Jesus died. Something caused it. And I would put it this way, quoting a famous historian, there's a resurrection-shaped hole in history that is the only thing that makes sense of what happened. 
Well, I certainly wouldn't agree that with that. I mean, no doubt Christian, Christianity answered to certain psychological needs that people had at that time in the Roman Empire. And we know that many different religions grew out and some of them also grew in remarkable ways. Islam also grew, for example, in uh, quite remarkable ways. Um, so I don't think the fact that uh, a religion survives and grows is evidence that there is some truth at its foundation. I also want to remind you that, that you made a statement just now that said none of them were expecting to see the resurrection. Well, we just don't know that. I mean, you know, we don't have any documentary evidence um, from those people there. That, you know, we don't have, say, that one of them wrote a letter to someone else saying, oh, you know, Jesus, who I was following, has been crucified. I'm in despair. That's the end of it. Um, you know, but we, we do, we simply... Peter. We have Luke who by all but Luke accounts... Luke was not one of these people. Yeah, he was a brilliant historian by all accounts who says at the very beginning of his history, the Gospel of Luke, that he traced everything from the beginning. He consulted eyewitnesses. He did everything historians should do. And he has been proved accurate and reliable on so many detailed things that we can check. So, so there's certainly a prima facie case to take him very seriously. So I think you're going too much too far to say we don't know when the historians take this very seriously indeed. I, let's, I've been... let's, let's move to the next topic. Um, Peter, would you like to respond to that? Um, well, I, let me just say that, I mean, there are contradictions within the Gospels themselves. You know, you take Luke, but I, I don't remember which way it is, but for example, take something like the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one of the Gospels says it was preached on a mount, the other says it was preached on the plain. Um, there seems to be a fair amount of disagreement within the Gospels themselves. On, Jesus on... may have been like many preachers, Peter. He preached the same sermon more than once. Well, I, I, my understanding is that most, that most, um, most historical scholars think that there was no sermon preached on the Mount, but that the Gospel writers put together a collection of his sayings and turned it into a sermon, and I understand there's internal evidence of that, but um, I'm not enough of a biblical scholar to, to go into that. Let's, uh, let's, let's move to a, a question for you, Peter. Um, do you see all religious belief as irrational? That is, would you, would you lump together all religions, or do you make uh, some distinction among them? Um, I think at their foundation, uh, all religious belief is uh, irrational insofar as it believes in a deity or a supernatural force or something of that sort. Um, but I, I, I put it that way because it depends a lot what you call a religion. For example, Buddhism is often regarded as a religion, but at least um, in its purer forms, it doesn't presuppose the existence of a deity. Um, you know, I think Buddhism is an interesting example where if you look at the practice of Buddhists in many countries, um, they become superstitious and they appear to believe that um, you know, uh, putting prayers somewhere or lighting a candle or something or other is going to somehow affect something that they're hoping for or make things go well. But um, I think in purer forms of Buddhism that isn't true. So um, you could say that Buddhism is perhaps a a philosophical, ethical way of life rather than a religion. And if you take that out of the religious teaching and other things like Buddhism, then I would say that all of those religions um, are ultimately irrational. Now, some may be more irrational than others. Some may have stranger and weirder and more bizarre beliefs than others, undoubtedly. But um, uh, I think that given, and I should say also, given what we know about the world now, I mean, I don't think it was necessarily irrational for people to have religious beliefs. 
before we could explain things. I mean, if you were living in earlier times and you saw thunder and lightning, maybe it wasn't irrational to think, wow, there's some great big guy up there who's angry and is you know, making this noise and these flashes. But you know, now we understand what thunder and lightning is and we have no reason to believe that that is in some way a sign of, uh, of a god. So I think um, it depends on our circumstances. But given the kind of knowledge of the world we have today, I think belief in a deity, uh, particularly a deity of the Bible, that, that sort, is irrational. Would you like to respond? Well, as I tried to argue at the beginning, I think atheism is irrational because it tries to derive rationality out of irrationality. And I see it a colossal leap of blind faith to go from an explanation of the universe in terms of mindless, unguided processes to all the marvelous rationality we have today. And as for coherence, the notion that there is an intelligent God behind our intelligence fits, it makes sense. In the beginning was the Word. And it's interesting, Peter made the point earlier, and I think it makes very clear what the issue between us is. We're talking, ladies and gentlemen, about two diametrically opposed worldviews. And the easy way to see that is, Peter will say, look, he accepts the universe, as I understood you, Peter, as a brute fact. It's there. So in that sense, it's for you ultimate reality. Everything else is derivative, including mind, intelligence, and the idea of God, because there isn't a God. I take the exact opposite view, that the mind is primary, not derivative. In the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was God, and the mass energy, the universe, or multiverse, or whatever we think of it as, is derivative. That is the issue between us. And uh, as someone once put it, uh, the question is not whether there is an ultimate fact. The question is, which ultimate fact do we believe in? And Peter believes in the universe in that sense, or as, as his ultimate fact, and I believe in God. And my argument simply is here, that far from, I can't speak for other religions, uh, Peter, I can speak mainly from my own faith, they must defend themselves, but it seems to me that Christianity makes far more rational sense. And I did mention it does seem to have been the foundation for modern science. How long science can keep going without it remains to be seen, but that's another matter. Uh, well, there's I mean, I agree with you on the statement of what the issue is between us. I, th I think you've stated yes. that uh, fairly and well. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I won't agree with you really about uh, the, any essential connection between Christianity and modern science. I think that to a considerable extent, science rose uh, in spite of Christianity rather than with it, and we only have to look at the way Christianity treated scientists like Galileo uh, to see that, and even Darwin, of course, uh, had a huge amount of religious opposition. Um, and, uh, you know, science, there were, there were certainly scientific minds in, in non-Christian cultures. There was um, a great deal of, of science in uh, India, for example, in terms of uh, astronomy, understanding of the universe, and in, in China as well. It's true that the rise of modern science happened in the Christian West for a variety of reasons, but I, I don't see a, any real necessary connection there. Um, thank you. Let's, let's move on to another question here, and this is the question of suffering, which is a, a primary argument, as I understand it, that, uh, that Professor Singer has, uh, has raised against the existence of the God of the Bible. How do you respond 
to that argument? With immense sympathy. It's the hardest problem, Peter, that I or you face, I think, to account for suffering. And, you know, every time I get asked the question, there's a vision comes into my mind of standing in Auschwitz, which I've done many times, and weeping. And you mentioned quite rightly that there are two problems. There's the problem of moral evil, and then there's the problem of what we call natural evil earthquakes. I was in Christchurch two days after the earthquake. I met some of the victims who were distraught, some people who'd had their friends crushed and so on. And I just feel that there are no simplistic answers to this. That's my first response. My second response is to say that if you then deduce that there's no God, in one sense you've solved the problem intellectually. The universe is just as it is, and so on. But what you've not done is remove the suffering. What you have decidedly done is removed all hope. Now, that may be the way the universe is. And I go through contortions like you do, and you mentioned some of them. Could God not if he had not seen this, and could he not, and so on. And we could have a lengthy discussion on this, and I think you would uh, probably outwit me very quickly on it. And I respond to all this, and I say, look, we can argue till the cows come home, as they say in Ireland, about what God might, could, etc., have done or not have done. But the fact is, we're faced with a world with two ruined cathedrals. There's one in Coventry that was ruined by moral evil, if you accept that for a moment, by bombing. There's one in Christchurch that was ruined by a natural disaster. And those, to my mind, are symbols of our problem. And my response is this. Yes, I'm faced like you with a world with ragged edges, with hurting people. My niece of 22 had an inner earthquake in her brain, and she's dead. My brother blown up in a terrorist bomb, and no doubt you have tragedies in your own background um, in Central Europe in years gone by. And I try to say this with extreme sensitivity because I don't feel there are any easy answers. I say, Peter, this. Granted that it's like that, is there any evidence whatsoever that there is a loving God out there? And my answer to that is, well, let me not say it's an answer, it's a window into an answer. You know, because I've said it this evening, that I believe Jesus is God. I know you don't accept that, but let's try and look at the logic of it. If Jesus actually was God, the question that I'm faced with is, what was God doing on a cross? And I can begin to see here that if this is true, then God has not remained distant from the problem of suffering and evil, but has himself become part of it. And all I can say that for me, with all my questions, and I have many, I have seen myself and many other people come to some kind of peace, if not necessarily closure, by knowing that God will understand. And there's one final point. If death is the end, 
then of course there is no hope. Now, because I believe in God, I have a problem with suffering. But then I do not believe death is the end. And I further believe that God is a God of absolute justice and fairness. And one day he will compensate to such an extent that if we could see now where the innocent victims of suffering have been, we would have a lot, I think, of let's, our questions Let's answered. let him respond. Okay, well, firstly, thank you, John, for your honesty in, in admitting that you don't really have an answer to the problem that I posed, which remains for me the strongest reason for not believing in the God of the Jewish and Christian tradition. And I think it still does after everything that you've said because you acknowledge that you can't really answer the problem. Um, now, you do say that um, if I say there's no God or if atheists say there's no God, we've solved the problem. So you agree that we have an answer to that problem, but you say we've not removed the suffering. Well, of course that's true. We haven't removed the suffering. We can try to remove the suffering. I think we ought to be trying to minimize the suffering, maybe not remove it because that's just too utopian, but we ought to be doing what we can to minimize it. Um, I don't think it helps you to find peace to know that God will understand. I would think really, you know, do you think if God understands this? Just why isn't he doing something about it? I mean, how does that help? Not, not everybody even not every suffering being even understands that there is a God. So it's no consolation to the kangaroos dying of, of lack of water out in the desert during a drought that God understands. They don't uh, understand uh, that concept at all. Um, then you said, if death is the end, then there is no hope. Um, no, death is the end of each one of us, but death is not the end of our species. There is hope in the sense that we can hope that humans will learn from mistakes of the past, that we will develop better ways of living, that we will um, be able to find ways in which people can live more peacefully and ethically together, that we will eventually develop our science to the point where we can minimize the suffering that's caused from natural disasters. And uh, there is hope that the world will improve. And I certainly have that hope. What I don't have, I guess, is the idea that God is, as you said, a God of absolute justice and fairness who will somehow compensate for this suffering. I don't even really understand how you could make sense of that. I mean, if suppose that you reward somebody who died a slow and agonizing death from uh, either from human moral evil, from being tortured slowly to death, or from a painful debilitating disease that took months to bring a person to their death. Even if you say, well, now he's in heaven and living a blissful life, it doesn't seem to take away the badness of, of what he suffered. Why couldn't he be in heaven without having suffered that? And again, um, my understanding is that at least standard Christian view is that it is only human beings who have this uh, hope of life after death. So where is the compensation again for all of the suffering over millions of years of billions and billions of non-human animals? Um, you may be heretical enough to say that they too get rewarded. That would be nice if you could believe that. But uh, I would still say, why not just have the rewards without the pain and suffering that came before? So um, where's the compensation? Christ told a story of a man who 
suffered in this life terribly because he was discriminated against. And he was called Lazarus, so I presume he was an actual person. And he got nothing to eat except what the dogs was pushed off the table for the dogs, and he was covered in sores. And I find it very interesting that Christ talked about what happened to him after death. He'd clearly been a friendless man, and yet we are told that in that eternal world, which is, of course, part and parcel of the hope of Christians, and I unashamedly believe in it, that man found himself in the company of Abraham, who is one of the few people described in Scripture as the friend of God. And it seems to me that that little cameo shows us that God can compensate. You say you cannot imagine it. I, I think that, okay, there are a lot of things I cannot imagine. But the New Testament, in its descriptions of the world to come, uses a lot of negatives, of course. There's no pain. There's no crying. There is no death. Well, Peter, if there is a world like that, isn't that infinitely better? Granted that the suffering's here anyway. You and I face it. It's here. Isn't that infinitely better than simply saying, well, there's hope for the species, but I personally have no hope whatsoever? You see, it seems to me that we're both faced with this problem, but that there is a Christian promise that, that transcends death. And the fact that Christ has become part of suffering, that weighs with me heavily. And of course, you will agree with me that not all suffering is bad. Suffering can develop a person's character. But I know exactly what you mean. There seems to be too much. And I would sense that in my own heart. But it still does not drive me to atheism. Because I see in Christ, and that's why I find the evidence so important, there is somewhere that I can really get some kind of peace, though not all the solutions that either I or you, Peter, would want to have. Um, let me just say that, again, you said that, you know, I have no hope, but I mean... No while personal I, hope. Well, I mean, but I do have personal hope. I hope that I will continue to live for another decade or so and enjoy oh, my right, life okay. and enjoy <laughs> my family and see my grandchildren get older. And I also have hope that I will continue to see improvements in the world. Yeah. Now, I do think that I will die and that, that'll be the end of me. Um, that's true, but it's not something that causes me to despair. But, I mean, I, I can see that it would be psychologically nice, you know, if you really believed that you were headed for some sort of immortality in some wonderful state. Um, it just seems to me you're telling yourself a fairy tale. You're really kidding yourself because, you know, it's maybe a bit tough for some people to accept the fact that um, we're mortal and there'll be a point at which we'll die and that'll be the end of it. But, Peter, you could be telling yourself a fairy's tale too. But I would, you know, I would, what's the fairy tale? I don't have the psychological reward, the idea that, you know, in, in many people, we're familiar with wishful thinking. We're familiar, I mean, look at now the climate skeptics who I think, you know, the Republicans who think, oh, if climate change is really happening, it'll justify the government in taking more drastic action to regulate our lives but we don't think governments ought to interfere in our lives, therefore the climate isn't changing. Or if it's changing, it has nothing to do with greenhouse gases that humans mm. emit, right? I mean, that's wishful thinking. I hope you agree with me that that's wishful oh, thinking. Oh, Peter, I accept the Freudian argument, but I think it works both ways. There's a wonderful book 
uh, written by Manfred Lutz, a Kleine Geschichte des Größten, a brief history of the great one, just appeared recently by Germany's leading psychiatrist, and he says this. He says, if there is no God, Freud gives us a brilliant explanation why heaven and all this kind of thing, pie in the sky when you die is wishful thinking, if there is no God. But then he goes on to say, if there is a God, Freud will give you an equally brilliant explanation of why atheism is wishful thinking, the desire not to meet God, as Czesław Miłosz put it, the famous uh, 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 Polish poet. So his bottom line is, as to whether there is a God or not, Freud won't help you. You'll have to go somewhere else. And that's why I want to go somewhere else and base it on something concrete. And for me, it comes back to the person of Christ and the resurrection. How do you respond, Peter? Could I, can our, I ask? Our, our, oh, time, is, oh, our right. time is running short. I do want to give Peter the opportunity yeah. to respond to that if you'd like Sorry. to. Well, let just me say that I didn't mention Freud tonight. If you want to hear me on Freud, I'm speaking tomorrow at the National Gallery of Victoria <laughs> about my grandparents in Freud's Vienna. My grandfather actually co-authored a paper with Freud, but um, uh, I'm not a Freudian. Um, I think there are much better psychological views, um, and I don't see how it could be wishful thinking to believe that you die and that's the end of it. I have, I have two, two final questions for you. Let me uh, put this one to, to both of you, and we'll, we'll begin over here. Dostoevsky is famously quoted as saying in The Brothers Karamazov, if there is no immortality, there can be no virtue, and all things are permissible. Do you accept the logic of that? I do, but I would want to carefully explain what he didn't mean. And what he didn't mean, and I'm sure Peter will agree with this, what he didn't mean is that atheists cannot be moral, because I often find myself shamed as a Christian by the character and integrity of my atheist friends. I don't think he was talking about that. I think he was talking about what I mentioned in my uh, opening uh, remarks, that there's no rational justification for morality if there isn't a God. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, just as I feel there's no rational justification for rationality if there isn't a God. But I, I think it's very important to see what he is uh, not saying and what he is saying. And that's what I think he's saying. Well, um, I agree with you that if, if he were saying that uh, atheists can't be moral, he would obviously be saying something false. But I also think he's saying something false on your interpretation, because I don't think you need belief in God to believe that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. In fact, one of your Oxford colleagues, um, uh, the philosopher Derek Parfit, um, has just in a couple of months ago published, I think, one of the most significant books in moral philosophy to be published for a long time. It's a two-volume, total of 1,400 pages, arguing for the idea of rationally-based objective truth in morality, and Parfit is an atheist. It makes no reference to God in, in this discussion. Um, I think it's perfectly possible to say that there are some things that it is rational to do that, for example, um, causing suffering to others for uh, no, let's say, for simply for amusement to yourself, where the amusement to yourself is clearly much less than the suffering you're causing to others, could be seen as uh, something that is uh, failing to take account of the idea that you are just one being in the universe, as is the other person that you're causing suffering to, and you're not justified 
in doing that. Um, now, there's a lot more argument, obviously, as I say, that needs to go into defending that, but I don't accept that um, only theism can provide a ground for the idea that some things really matter in a perfectly straightforward and objective sense. A final question uh, for the two of you before we get to your closing statements, and we'll begin here with you, Peter. A child asks you the age-old question, who am I and why am I here? What is your response? Well, if the child asks, who am I, I think I can answer that question quite well. I can say, you are an animal, you are an animal of the primate, or a mammal, you're a primate, and you're of the species Homo sapien. And I can say we know a lot of bad beings like you and uh, how they come into existence, what's their nature. There's still a lot more that we can find out and hopefully will find out in generations to come, but we know a good deal about um, who you are. But the question, why am I here, or why am I here, is um, at least potentially a mistaken question if it seeks a purpose for your being here. If it seeks an explanation, then of course the explanation is essentially uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. And, and let me just say, because I remember I wanted to respond to something John said but didn't, um, that is that I think we can assume that somehow in the primeval soup we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating. And I don't think we need any miraculous or mysterious uh, views about how life gets going. But from that point, uh, we have uh, evolution which leads us to be here. But if we think, is there a purpose to my existence? The purpose is only the purposes that we give ourselves. Um, we are purposive beings, so we can say, I want my purpose to be whatever it, it might, whatever we decide it might be. But is there some ultimate reason why am I here? No, there just isn't, and it's a mistake to ask that question. Well, not surprisingly, I don't think it's a mistake to ask that question. You've got immense faith of the wrong kind, Peter, in the primeval soup, but that's another matter. Um, if I'm asked that question, of course, we can describe various things about a child and its relationship to the world, but I think one of the most thrilling things is this, that that child is of infinite value because it bears the image of its creator. And I think one of the most, well, for me, one of the most moving things that's stated in the whole of the Bible comes near the end of it in the book of Revelation, where there is a scene in heaven in which I believe, where God is being praised as creator. And one of the elements in that praise is this, that the whole of heaven, so to speak, is praising God and saying about human beings, because of your will they were and were created. Now that's rather ancient English, so let me put it into contemporary English. One of the things that makes my life meaningful and the child to whom, who asked the question is that I do believe, ladies and gentlemen, that I exist because God wanted me to be. And it's that that fills my life with meaning that I cannot begin to describe. To have a relationship with the creator that invented the atom, that invented all the colors that no scientist can think of a new one really, that thought of the human brain, 
That is an exciting and a thrilling thing. And to think that me, that I, with all my imperfections, inadequacies, and failures, that God could want me to be, that is the thing that gives me a tremendous value. And I would want to explain that, amongst other things, to any child and, indeed, any person in the world. Your closing remarks. Thank you. Um, I think we've had a very interesting discussion. I think that it's clarified a number of the points between religious believers and atheists like myself. Um, And uh, obviously, I still think that uh, the existence of suffering, of the kinds of sufferings that John and I agree exist, is the great barrier to belief in this kind of, of God of the Bible. But uh, one thing that has emerged in our discussion is the extent to which John wants to place weight on uh, the scriptures. Um, He's referred very largely to uh, the New Testament, the the Christian scriptures, although he did, of course, refer to the opening lines of of, uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, And I think that, you know, it doesn't really stand up to the kind of critical examination. I mean, there are lots of things in it which clearly are not true when read in a perfectly ordinary way. Not just the contradiction I mentioned, but the fact that it's, it's pretty clear that um, both Jesus and Paul believed that the second coming or um, the apocalypse or whatever you, you might want to call it um, was going to happen very soon. Um, there are lines repeated a couple of times where Jesus says something like, none of you shall taste death before I come again. And Paul says uh, similar things, suggesting that it was clearly expected that this great event would happen quite soon in their own lifetimes or, you know, certainly within a century or so. Um, And we know, of course, that Christians have continued to think this all down through the ages. We had this farcical episode just a month or two back where some uh, Americans believed some Christian who said that the world was coming to an end on a specific time and date. Um, but, you know, let's leave those kinds of, of ravings aside. But, but the fact that this is clearly repeated in the uh, New Testament surely suggests, and it didn't happen, obviously, surely suggests that we should not believe in the kinds of things that uh, Jesus is, is saying. That, the, in, in a sense, the honesty or accuracy of, of the reports is, is evidence that um, they are the reports insofar as they're historically accurate, of a false preacher, a preacher who had false beliefs about what was going to happen in the future. And um, so I think that we can't really place um, much historical weight at all, even if they show that there was such a preacher around at this time, um, in terms of him being uh, God or the Son of God or however we reconcile those problems. Um, uh, No. And uh, there are many other things, I think, um, if we believe these, these scriptures, that we would want to reject morally, not only factually, that would lead us to, to doubt them. Um, the attitude of, of Paul to women, for example, if he was supposed to have been enlightened and um, received Christ and so on, um, we would certainly want to reject his, his moral views. The moral views of Christians to homosexuality, I think, is again something that uh, we certainly ought to reject. So um, I don't see in my reading of the scriptures evidence either of the idea that these are 
a record of someone who was supremely wise and supremely knowledgeable, nor the re that they're a record of someone who was supremely morally good. Um, someone who certainly had some interesting things to say about morality, um, but not someone who you would want to say had uh, the greatest insights of all time into uh, the nature of morality. So um, I think for, for that reason alone, um, if I were to become a theist of some sort, if I were to be persuaded, and I'm One not, minute. by these arguments about the difficulty of rationality emerging from a, a world without reason, um, I would still not think that the Christian scriptures are evidence that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was someone who we ought to regard as, uh, in some way, a godlike or divine being. Thank you. Well, Peter, it's been a real pleasure to be allowed to come to Melbourne, to your home city, and to have this utterly fascinating debate that's going to give me a lot of pause for thought in days to come. Let me turn to what you were saying about Christ, who is, after all, the central evidence of my faith. And you said that he was mistaken in his notions about the coming, and you quoted a statement. The actual quotation is this. There will be some of you, he said to the disciples, standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. And the, each of the texts uh, goes on then to say that uh, a few days later, he took Peter, James, and John up onto a high mountain and was transfigured before them. And his face began to shine as the sun. And I believe that that it was the exact fulfillment of what he said, that he went up that mountain and they saw what the kingdom of God was like. They saw Elijah and Moses, by the power of Christ, made contemporary with Christ. They saw his character transfigured. They saw that although down in this world he was treated with disrespect, in that world above he was the sun, S-U-N, the source of all its energy, radiance, and light. Now, the interesting thing is one of the people who was there was the Apostle Peter. And he, writing as an old man, says that the thing that convinced him par excellence of the reality of the eternal kingdom was what happened on that mountain. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and hearing a voice come from heaven, that was a preview of what will happen on a large scale. Now, Christ taught about his coming in two ways in the New Testament. And I think, Peter, you've got confused between the two, because Christ taught parables where he expected his followers to live as if he was coming back just like that. But then he also said, well, of course, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet, it's not yet, and so on. So there was a historical process, but nevertheless, he expected his followers to live as if he was coming back, and that makes perfect sense. 
Because psychologically, if I think, well, Christ will return away then, then it is of no relevance to me. I've forgotten the fact that the moment I die, I'll step sideways into eternity. So I do not think he was mistaken. I think what he was doing was giving a two-level teaching to explain exactly what was going on. But in conclusion tonight, what I would like to stress is this. Peter, I've been very impressed by your interest in practical ethics, because I think you probably were the one who pioneered that. But you'll have noticed that Christianity is not primarily a system of ethics. Ethics comes at the second order. It flows out of the Christian message, and there's a reason for that. Because the problem is, when people teach me ethics, when they set an ethical standard in front of me, that, of course, raises guilt within me. And I don't even keep my own standards, let alone God's standards. I need more than ethical teaching. I need forgiveness. I need power to live. And it seems to me that here Christianity is utterly unique. It's not competing with any other religion for the simple reason that Christ offers me something that nobody else offers. He offers me pardon and forgiveness and a certainty of life to come. Now, Peter, you talk a lot in your books about ethics. The one thing that I see missing is this, that there's no, there's no concept of ultimate justice. And because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I believe there's going to be a final judgment when justice will be done for everyone. As far as I can see, and perhaps I misunderstand it, but under atheism, the terrorist in a corner blows his brains out, and in a sense, he will never face justice. And millions of people, by definition, who have not got justice in this world will never get it in the world to come because there isn't a world to come. So atheism, it seems to me, whatever ethics can be developed, in the end, there is no justice. But belief in God and in Christ gives that added element, which makes everything make sense. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Thank Peter. You,